Mark chapter 14 this morning. Let me invite you to turn there. Mark chapter 14. How do we avoid the catastrophic betrayal of Judas that we talked about last week in our own lives? I concluded last week by saying that we must make sure that our roots are planted deep into the Word. That we are not just listening to the Word week after week or service after service, but we are responding to it. We're we're being changed by it. That there is genuine change happening and that can only take place when we are responding to it. One of our greatest problems as Christians is self-confidence. We get a high view of ourselves and that high view of ourselves breeds complacency, complacency that we begin to become apathetic with spiritual things because after all, God saved me and so what can I possibly do wrong that would, that would uh, remove us from His care? And uh, while there is an element of truth to that, what it leads to really is an apathetic sort of lifestyle. And that's precisely the time when sin and Satan can can attack. When we start to put our guard down, we become overconfident in our position before God. We become over uh, overly arrogant, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and we, then we drop our guard down and become complacent with spiritual things. As if God, we, we don't need God anymore. And it's at that time when Satan shoots his fiery darts when we drop our shield of faith. When I was about 13 years old, my brothers and I used to have uh, boxing matches in the basement. And uh, we, my, bro- my oldest brother had some boxing gloves, and so it was padded when we'd hit each other. wouldn't leave any marks that my, my parents would uh, get too upset. I'm not sure if they even knew that they was, these were going on, but my uh, two younger brothers were going at it pretty intensely at one point, and they usually didn't get along very well, so it made for a really great fight. And um, so we we got to enjoy watching it. The older of the two, Scott, was dominating most of the fight, and uh, of course the the younger one was so much smaller than him, and um, and uh, Scott was was uh, dominating, and the fight kind of climaxed when my brother Scott landed a right hook on Jackie's jaw. And it sent Jackie down into a hunched, crouched position. And, uh, of course, we all go over to see if he's okay. And even Scott went over there. And Jackie, being the sly guy that he is, waited till the perfect time when he's crouched over and he lands a huge uppercut in Scott's uh, jaw to return the... Uh, to return the favor, and uh, I don't remember how the fight the, the fight ended, but what it, my point was is that Scott came to him not with guards up like uh, I'm going to get hit here. He came with guards down like he's really in trouble and I need to, to to see if he's okay. And my point is is that we can easily get blasted by sin when we let our guard down, can't we? We are most vulnerable, I think, when we become overconfident about ourselves and our own condition 
And that comes when we don't pray. I mean, that's most clearly seen when we're not praying. That's what this passage is about that we're going to look at today. We need to be actively engaged in prayer in order to avoid complacency and overconfidence. And, uh, and that's exactly what Christ does, and that's what He expects His followers to do. Let's begin reading in chapter 14 with verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Believers must participate in watchful prayer in order to avoid complacency and overconfidence. After leaving the upper room in verse 26, we find that they went out to the Mount of Olives. They, this is following the Last Supper. And this uh, conversation that we see here in verses 27 through 42 apparently is taking place on the way to or as they get to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is telling them that they will fall away. And he knows that Jesus himself knows that he needs prayer for his own soul so that he doesn't fall away. And he knows that the disciples need it as well so that they don't fall away. And so he teaches them by example and by word that watchful prayer is what's necessary to overcome this complacency. Because by nature we are susceptible to falling away. Even as believers, we are susceptible to falling away. That's what we see in verses 27 through 31. Jesus begins by predicting the disciples' scattering. In verse 27, he says, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
we need to understand, I think, what falling away is. What does it mean to fall away? Because, in a sense, we have Judas falling away. He actually, what, what his actions were referred to is, is that he betrayed Jesus, that he handed him over to the enemies. So it's a little bit different than what Jesus is talking about here. And I would suggest to you that falling away is denying association with Christ either by word or through desertion, by, by deserting Christ. Look at verses 29 and 30 because we can see how these terms uh, are defined. Verse 29, But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. So here's what we're talking about. Peter's saying, I will not fall away. Notice what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him in verse 30, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, we would expect Jesus to say here, you yourself will fall away. What does he say? You will deny me three times. So here within the text, I think we have a good definition of what falling away is. It's a temporary loss of courage. And it's expressed in the desertion, the, the desertion of the disciples so that they scatter. That's why it says that you strike the shepherd, strike the Savior, and, and the sheep will be scattered. They're, go, they're going to go away. They're fearful of their own demise. What's going to happen to me if I, if I uh, sidle up too closely to this one who's going to be struck? Am I going to get injured too? We'll see this next week as they actually do desert him and, um, and as uh, Peter actually denies him. The scattering that's uh, referred to, you notice in your text in verse 27 that those letters are in all capitals, and that just means that it's referring to an Old Testament text. That's actually a quotation from Zechariah chapter 13. That that when the the shepherd was struck, that the sheep would be scattered. It was pointing forward to this Christ, to this Messiah, this promised one, who would come. And and although he was struck, he was wounded. Even his closest followers would not stay near him. They would scatter, but it wouldn't be a permanent scattering. It would only be temporary. The disciples could not believe that that could possibly happen. Verse 29, Peter says, I would never do that. But Jesus says, no, actually, Peter, verse 30, you're going to do it tonight. In fact, you're not just going to deny me once, Peter. You're not going to fall away once. You're going to, you're going to deny, deny me three times. He says this very night. And it's going to happen. He gives him a time marker and an audible marker. He says, before the rooster crows two times. You're going to hear a rooster crow. And the second time you hear it crow, you will have denied me three times. It must have made quite an impact on Peter hearing that rooster. We'll, we'll get to that um, when we study that in two weeks. But even after Jesus says, it will happen, and it will happen tonight. Notice Peter's response in verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter thinks that he knows more about his own strength, his own resolve. He knows more about it than even Christ does. And he, in fact, says, even if all these other disciples, even if all of these other ten disciples deny you, not me, 
I will follow you to the death. And his disciples were saying the same thing. You see the overconfidence that Peter had in himself and in his own ability. He thought that he could follow Jesus to the end on his own. And yet he denies Christ three times as we know as we know that the story unfolds. And I think when we get to uh, the denial of Christ, I'll mention this again, but I think the reason that after Jesus is raised from the dead and comes back to the beach, remember where they, they had some fish there on the beach, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Peter says, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And he does it a third time. Why would Jesus do this? What is he talking about there? I think the point that he's making is, you claimed that you loved me more than all these other disciples. And that you were going to follow me to the death. And yet you deny me three times. Three times you said you didn't know me. Because you knew what kind of things could have happened if you did accept a relationship with me. And so Jesus says three times to him after he comes back, do you really love me more than these, Peter? Who are you putting your trust in? And what's amazing in verse 31 is it's not just the sentiment of Peter. Notice the end of the verse. And they all, that is the other ten disciples, remember Judas is gone by now, the other ten disciples, and they all were saying the same thing also. See, we'd follow you to the death too, Jesus. We're not going to deny you. And yet we know from the rest of the Gospels that all of them are scattered. All of them do fall away. They don't go with him all the way to the end because they know what it could mean for them. So it really shows our need to constantly be humble before God, recognizing that we need God step by step, not just at the point of salvation. Just give me my ticket to heaven and then I'm all set from there on in. I can handle it from here. We need God every step of the way or otherwise we will fall away. And if you are at a position right now where you think you're standing firm, then Paul says, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 could happen to any one of us. And the remedy to falling away is not to work up some more energy within ourselves. Jesus gives us the remedy in verses 32-42, through 42, and that is watchful prayer. Watchful prayer. Jesus gives them an example in verses 32-36. He goes to this place called Gethsemane in verse 32. It's probably on the lower slopes on the west side of the Mount of Olives, a place where He would often go to find some privacy and to pray. And at the end of verse 32, He leaves the eight disciples there and He takes three with Him. Notice verse 33. And He took with Him Peter and James and John. They began to be very distressed and troubled. Or as another translation states it, that he was in uh, in great horror or dismay, and his his command for them is that they were to remain there and keep watch. Notice verse thirty four, and he said to them, "My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch." 
Jesus is in a, a fearful type of state. And He tells them that I'm going to pray. I want you to remain here and keep watch. What does He mean by that? What is He trying to tell them? What were they supposed to be doing? Were they supposed to be looking out for the guards who could have been coming? Which they do come in verse 43. They, they come and, and, and begin to take Him by force. Is that what they're supposed to be watching out for? Well, I would suggest to you that it actually has to do not with physical protection, but more with what Jesus was talking about in chapter 13. Turn back there with me. Chapter 13, verse 33. Remember, on the Mount of Olives, just prior to this, He had been telling them about the end times and what was going to come. And here is His, here is his command to these disciples and to, I believe disciples of all ages. He says this. And notice the, the repeating phrase, keep on the alert. Verse 33. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, Jesus is talking about His return when He will come back. We, we talked about that during... This is talking about the end times. So this isn't specifically related to the disciples. But what I want you to see here is that the definition of keeping alert or staying alert, what Jesus is telling them to do, stay on the watch, remain uh, alert... We can understand what he's talking about by looking at this passage. I think what he means is that we need to be spiritually alert against the temptation to give up. Okay, Don't give up and think that this battle is, is over because it seems as if Jesus is losing. You see, Jesus protected Himself by going to pray. He prepared Himself for this coming temptation that that would try to pull him away from having to go through this trial on his own. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Jesus didn't want to be despised by his Father for our sake. Okay, there is a sense in which he did, right? He came to lay down his life. But there's also a sense in which he's human and he didn't want to go through that. And that, we'll see that here as he prays. This great, great distress of Jesus is uh, seen back in chapter 14, verse 33 at the end. It says, He began to be very distressed and troubled. In verse 34, He says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Not something that He was looking forward to go to the cross. Verse 35, And He went a little beyond them, fell to the ground, and began to pray that, it were, that if it were possible, the hour might pass Him by. And notice what He prays. Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. We see Jesus, the urgency of Jesus, he, that He falls down to the ground and prays. Shows His extreme urgency and humility. And He cries out to His Father, Abba, Father. This is a term that was used in Aramaic. Um, it was a term of intimacy that a child would use to his father. It would be the equivalent of our daddy. Daddy, please save me from this. Notice what he prayed for, verse 36, that the cup would pass from him. 
He's asking that this cup of suffering that, that was not a day away would not have to happen. And that included, I think, not just the death, but I think it really included all of what was leading up to that, especially the, the three-hour period in which God turned His back on Him and poured out the judgment of the whole world that was deserving of the whole world onto His shoulders. Jesus prays for God to take this away. And notice how He prays, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what You will. He, he prays to God and He says, God, all things are possible for You. Verse 35 says that, uh, and He went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible. So He's praying with the idea that He understands that God has a plan. But He also understands that God has power. That's why He says in verse 36, all things are possible for You. The question we have to ask is, how does this work together? God's plan and God's power. Because sometimes what we do is we say that God can only do what He has planned to do. And there, there's a sense in which that is true. But we have to ask ourselves, does God have the power to do anything? Does God have the power to do something that's not in His plan? Does He have the power to do that? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 135. Psalm 135. And I want to show you several texts that show us God's limitless power. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. In, in all the deeps. God does whatever He pleases. Look back to chapter 115. Chapter 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Okay, so God can do whatever He wants. God can do whatever He wants. Look at Job chapter 42. One book back towards the front of your Bible. Job chapter 42. God gives this long speech to Job to show how great He is, how magnificent He is, and how He cannot be questioned in His justice. And here's how Job responds in chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job says, I know that you can do all things. Psalm says, God can do whatever He pleases. Job says, God has the power to do anything. Nothing's too hard for God. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Okay, Isaiah and then Jeremiah. Jeremiah 
32. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Look down to verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? A question that has been asked before in Genesis. Sarah, when she recognizes that she will give birth to a son in her old age, she says to God, Is anything too hard for you, God? Mary says the same thing when she gives birth or when she becomes pregnant as a virgin. She says in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, is anything too hard for God? So, when we say that God can only do what He has planned, that He only has the power to do what He has planned, is that really accurate? I think there is a sense in which that's true. That's only the things that He will do. But we tend to make God's power uh, a little bit more cut and dry than really the Scriptures show. We, we tend to look at a certain action. We say, well, either God can do it, like send Jesus to the cross or, or remove Jesus from the cross. Either He can do it or He can't. But there's really an aspect in which He can and He can't. That He can't remove Jesus from the cross because that's part of His plan. But He has the power to do it. We saw it in these verses. Is anything too hard for God? So, for example, could God have caused me to be born in October? I wasn't born in October, but could God have caused me to be born in October? Well, yes, He could have. And yet, He did not. Because as part of His plan, I was not born in October. Suppose I invite you over to our house for dinner on Friday night, but you answer, well, I can't come. I have another commitment. Well, I could ask you, do you have the ability to come over to my house or don't you? Can you come or can't you? And you would say, well, I have the ability to. I know where your house is. I have a vehicle so I can get there. But there's a scheduling conflict. So I can come in the sense that I have the ability to, but I can't because I have a scheduling conflict. You see, this is what's going on with with God and His power. He has the power to do whatever He pleases, Psalm 115. Whatever. And yet, there are some things that He doesn't do. The point that I'm trying to make is that God's power is limitless. It, when, when we come up to a thing that we don't know what the outcome is, we need to be thinking, okay, not what is a part of God's plan? Because we don't ultimately know what is a part of God's plan, what He will ultimately do. We need to be thinking, God can do the impossible. God can do what I can't do. We should never restrict our view of God to only what He does, but rather understand that God can do all things. And that's the way Jesus prays in Mark chapter 14. He understands that God has a plan. That's why He says in verse 35, or it says in verse 35 that if it were possible, but yet He prays for something that, that, that God could possibly do. When Jesus finish, finishes praying, he finds the disciples 
sleeping in verse 37 through 41. And so he rebukes them for failing to keep watch in verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember, to keep watch is to be alert against spiritual temptations. You need to stay awake so that you can you can be alert to the spiritual temptations that are coming your way. Do you realize how they're coming and they're coming hard. Peter and the other disciples were not ready because they were complacent. They were overconfident in themselves. They would never fall away. Jesus says in verse 38, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think he's referring here to the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. That That is, that the disciples have good intentions, but but their flesh, their 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 body, their their mind hold them back. The point is he's making is that, that when the human spirit is under God's control through watchful prayer, and it can fight against this weak flesh that is falling away, that's meaning that's drifting towards desertion. Notice how intensely Jesus prays in verse thirty nine. Again he went away and prayed the same words. How long was Jesus gone the first time? Look at verse 37. How long was He gone? An hour. It says in verse 39 that He prayed the same words. This isn't a vain repetition, but He's praying the same sort of thing that He prayed before. The idea is that He probably prayed for another hour here for the cup to pass from Him. He was persistent He was persistent in His desire and in His verbal proclamation to God that He wanted this to go away. When he comes back, he finds them sleeping the second time, verse 40, and then the third time, verses 41 and 42. And in verse 41, it says he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The time of betrayal had come. The main point here is that overconfidence leads to complacency. The disciples thought that they could make it, that they would be fine on their own, that they didn't need watchful prayer like Jesus was calling for. What they did need was what Jesus was what Jesus was doing, and that was praying for his own spiritual well being, recognizing his own dependence upon God. So what we should learn here is that watchful prayer is the solution to remaining steadfast in the midst of trial. Both Jesus and His disciples would be facing trials within the next few hours. Jesus prayed for Himself. And did He fall away? Not at all. But the disciples did not pray for themselves. And did they fall away? They certainly did. They gave up. They temporarily lost courage in following God. So this passage teaches us that we need to be we need to recognize our own condition, that we are constantly dependent upon God, and we need to continue in watchful prayer. We we do need to do that. But it also teaches us how to pray. That we ought to pray even though God already has the plan determined. 
Did you ever think about that? He already knows if you're going to get over that sickness. He already knows if that family member is going to come out of that 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 uh, extreme illness. He already knows if that neighbor is going to be saved or not, but you don't. And even Jesus, who we would think He knew the outcome, He still prays. Why? Because He knew that God could do all things and that the means by which God accomplishes His purposes, okay, that plan that He's already got unfolded over here for your life, the means by which He accomplishes it is through your prayer. So pray. Pray regularly. Pray believing that God can do the impossible. Can He? Can can God do whatever He pleases? Pray believing. And then pray trusting. Knowing that God will do what is best. Notice how Jesus prays at the end of verse 36. Even though He wanted this cup to pass from Him, He prays this, Yet, not what I will, but what You will. Not my will be done, God, but Your will be done. You know, God does not always answer how we desire Him to answer. Christ prayed for the cup of suffering to pass from Him. Paul prayed that the thorn of the flesh would be removed from Him. But neither one of them were answered, were they? In the way that those people prayed them. Remove them from me. Take them out of my life. I don't want to experience them. And yet God didn't answer in the way that they desired. And you know why God didn't? Now that we look back on it, we realize that God didn't answer Jesus by removing that cup of suffering because that cup of suffering turned out to be His greatest glory that in saving the world, He would be lofty and lifted up to the highest place. As Philippians 2 says, so that at at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The thing that He was praying to be removed from was actually what God was going to used to glorify Himself in in the greatest way possible. And the same thing is true about Paul. What Paul didn't know was that that thorn in the flesh was what God was using to perfect Paul, to make him depend upon God more. And so sometimes we don't get what we pray for. And yet we still need to pray trusting, not my will, but Your will be done. So we learn that God always does what is best for His own glory, Okay, allowing Jesus to go through that suffering, allowing Paul to have that thorn in the flesh, allowing you to go, whatever trial that, go through whatever trial you're going through. He does it for His own glory, but He also does it for your own good. He does it for your own uh, sanctification, your growth in godliness. And even if we don't know what the plan is, we still pray. We still pray that God will use our prayers to accomplish His purpose. And finally, this passage should be both for us a warning and an encouragement. A warning that we should not lose heart in the fight against sin. That we should not let our guard down spiritually. That we shouldn't drop the shield of faith so that Satan's arrows can come and pierce us. 
Perhaps you are at a place right now in your life where you're on the edge of spiritual disaster. You're participating in a sin or an activity that is opposed to God, that God hates, that is an abomination to Him. Perhaps you're feeling as if, as you're standing on the edge of spiritual disaster, that there's no way out. I've gone too far. God will never rescue me from this. This passage is a warning for you that that, that there is a possibility that you could fall away, that you could temporarily desert Him, or as, as Judas did, that he could permanently desert Him. So we need to be warned that catastrophic disaster is near for those who do not recognize their dependence upon God. Don't ever become complacent in your spiritual life. Don't ever think that the battle is over. It's not. The spiritual battle rages. You will never be at a place in this life where you can stand up on a pinnacle and say, nothing can cause me to fall. doesn't matter how great your intentions are. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need God continually. We need to depend upon Him, and we can only do that through prayer. It should be a warning for us to watch out for spiritual disaster, but also an encouragement. An encouragement that Jesus' best followers will falter at times. Isn't that amazing? The people that he invested his life into for three years, the people who were with him, even the three closest ones who would have special times of learning, even they had a momentary lack of courage, didn't they? So it's an encouragement for us in the sense that, that yes, we do recognize our own frailty, frailties, but, but also recognize that, that God is there ready for us to return. That He's ready with His arms open waiting for us to repent and wanting us to come back to Him. Now, that should not give us a license to sin. Well, I can do whatever I want. That goes back to the complacency issue or the apathetic idea. But understand that God can help us to overcome that sin. That One momentary faltering, whatever you have done, God is ready for you to repent and to turn back and follow Him again. And isn't that what the eleven disciples do? Strike the shepherd, the sheep are scattered, but then he, he gathers them all back and says, you know what? Everything's okay. I'm still on the throne. My plan is still going to come to fruition. And you're still going to be my followers. So don't give up. And I think they learned their lesson. Not that they never faltered again, but certainly they recognized that prayer is essential to avoiding complacency and overconfidence in our spiritual lives. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, You know our hearts. You know how easy it is for us to turn away from You, to follow after the things of this world, to pursue our own pleasures. The deceitfulness of sin is very evident in our lives. So easy to get caught up in the things that you are opposed to. 
And we pray that You would help us to remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in Your work. We pray that You'd help us not to be complacent spiritually. We don't want to be unworthy servants. We don't want to uh, pretend as if Your love means nothing to us, that Your sacrifice means nothing. We want to live as servants of You, recognizing that You demand that we follow You, that, that we depend upon You. But we can't do that without Your help. And so we pray that You'd help us to pattern our lives after the life of Jesus Christ. That we would spend long and serious periods of time uh, daily praying to You. Admitting our frailties. Admitting that we have sinned. Confessing our sin before You. Repenting of it. Turning from it. Showing that we depend upon You by praying to You not just in public when other people are listening, but, but in our own personal time like Jesus did. May we spend time with You each day expressing our dependence upon You. And we do pray that we would lay all of our burdens at Your feet. Our temptation is to tell everybody else about them around us frustrations that we're having with uh, things going on in our lives, with jobs or health concerns or family, and yet we fail to bring them to You. We pray that You'd help us to do that. Because ultimately, You can do anything that You please. We don't know what Your plan is, but we do know that Your plan is best. And that You will always work to glorify Yourself and to do what is best for us. And that is to make us more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. So if that means that we have to go through a trial for the rest of our life, then we are willing to do it because we want to be, uh, we want to be counted worthy. We want to, to uh, expect and to see what You will do in our lives because of what Jesus Christ has done. So we pray that You'd help us to give our all to You. And for those here who have faltered, maybe recently, and feel as if You are far away, we pray that You would show them that You are near and that You would help them to see that Your love is real and that You are pursuing them and that You desire to have a relationship with them. pray that You would encourage those who have faltered Encourage those of us who will falter. We pray that we would not be like the person who falls down and doesn't get up again, but that we would be the person that does get back up again. Repent of our sins and move on. Give us the grace to follow. And we pray that, that You would be honored in our church as we respond to Your Word today. For we pray in the name of our great Savior. Amen.